0: Blob Talk Radio. This episode of the Drum is brought to you by Fifteen Hertz and the Marcus Graham Project and is sponsored by PepsiCo, Beats Electronics, and Usher's New Look Foundation. Don't click that button. And you are here with Derrick Me Morin. Thank you so much for tuning in to the drum. Um, most importantly, I want to say thank you to all our loyal listeners because this is one of our last episodes this summer. On behalf of Fifteen Hearts, we want to say thank you for tuning in, listening, checking in, sharing this post with other individuals, you know, and and helping us resonate. So I got a song I want to play for you guys real quick, and then we'll be moving on to our interviewing our guest, our guest today, Jake Katz from Revolt TV. Stay tuned. Closer to my head. My, host, my co-host for today is Brian Brian no <laughs> Brian how you feeling today
1: I'm doing outstanding today
0: outstanding this is the last week of the program how you feel about that
1: uh, that's why I feel outstanding because it's, it's, it's so wrong it's an amazing journey when you learn so much and it's exhausting but then again it's exhausting
0: yes it is exhausting it's exhausting but you know we just came back from New York how was that
1: New York was was amazing it's an awesome city Vibrant. There's so much culture so many different cultures so much happening.
0: Was that your first time?
1: That was my very first time I I've never been and uh, I was surprised by a lot of things and um, Yeah, I honestly didn't you you always hear the reputation of New York being this Ruthless big bad mean place, but everyone was pretty friendly to me.
0: Yeah, New York is pretty friendly has a really cool vibe and sense of like being in the city, but still feeling like cozy and, and warm Sometimes. If you just, like, look over the trash on the street. Yeah, look over the
1: mountains <laughs> of trash. Other than that, it's a pretty cool place.
0: Yeah, it is. It is a pretty cool place. And I really, I'm happy that, you know, you all and a lot of the people in the program, those was their first time you guys were exposed to something like that. Well, a really, really cool thing that we did when we were in New York, we got a chance to visit Revolt TV. We got to visit their New York office. And it was really, I thought it was awesome.
1: Yeah, it was awesome. They were so welcoming, and they were just as soon as we got there, they were like, "All right, down to business. This is what you want to know about." Yeah. And, and, they, are.
0: and they, and most importantly, they had some great things to say to us. But before I dive into anything more, we do have our guest speaker, who is from Revolt TV. We have Jake Katz from Revolt TV, who is the um, vice president of audience insight and strategy. Jake's on home, I'm about to cue him in right now.
2: Jay? Hey guys, how you doing? Hey
0: Jake, how you doing?
2: I'm good. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: No problem. First and foremost, we want to say thank you to you and everybody else at Revolt for letting us in. It was early in the morning, but we started off the morning with such great inspiration when we came to visit your New York office. Absolutely, it was a pleasure to have you guys in. Thanks. Um. So Jake, this is like our second, probably. We came across you. This is the second time that we came across you. Came to to Dallas when um, Revolt collided with McDonald's to do the Local Love tour, um, and we got to see something that resonated so much with us, which was the presentation that you did at Maroc Partners about generational insight. Um, and I don't know about anybody else in the room. I, I'm, you know, Brian's the planner, so you could tell me. But when we saw that presentation, we were you were right on spot. You were on the money.
1: Yeah, Uh, I I was When I walked in there, I'm like, oh my God, this guy's taking me to church right now. (laughs) (laughs) Thank
2: you guys so much. It's especially nice to hear that from you because you are the age and demographic that we're studying. So sometimes as an outsider, there's a benefit to looking into the inside, Um, but it's only that much better when we get validation from the audience themselves that it feels authentic. It feels like we're on to something real.
0: Okay, so let's let's help our listeners out. So let's learn a little bit more about you and how you got to the position that you are right now as the Vice President of Audience, Audience Insight and Strategy at Revolt.
2: For sure. So what, where would you guys like me to begin? What's the best way to kind of describe it for you?
0: Well, a lot of our listeners are aspiring ad men, ad women who are still in college. So let's talk about, I think there's a story that you were at a coffee shop and you were like, yo get me a job. You know, let's, let's start from the beginning, beginning.
2: <laughs> <laughs> All right. So I, um I, so for everybody listening who is in college, you know, that's a good thing because the unfortunate truth is most of these companies, any major corporation and even most startups require that you have a college degree to even do an internship there. And when I was living in New York city about eight years ago, um and I was finishing my degree at Brooklyn College. I was working at a bakery in a coffee shop called Tisserie in Union Square. And I was also a personal assistant to at the time the COO of Gawker Media. So I was really busy. I just I didn't really know like the best way to land a first job. I just knew that you know you think of it like Dart, the more you're opening yourself up to being exposed to new opportunities or new openings at companies or anything that's gonna pay for some work. The better chance you have at getting that first job. Um, And one day I was at the coffee shop and somebody came in and asked for the owner, who was like a really entrepreneurial guy. He's really charismatic. He knew a lot of people. And I said he wasn't there. And the guy said, Well, here's my card. Have him call me when he comes in. And the guy's card uh, said MTV on it. It was a guy named Jesus Lara, who at the time I think did um, talent for MTV Trace. And I said to Morris, who was the owner of Tissery, when he came back, Is there any way you can get me an internship? Um, at MTV, or at least an, in, an informational interview over at MTV. And I think I just felt like the thing that really sets apart people who get jobs quickly and those who kind of spin their wheels and end up at a job they don't like, it's not always the case, but you have to have internships, which is why I'm such a big fan of the Marcus Grand Project, because it's like an innovative way to have something on your resume coming out of school or at least entering the marketplace looking for entry-level jobs. And so from there, I ended up getting an informational interview at MTV And they were basically, I thought I wanted to do marketing, and they were like, Have you ever heard of marketing research? And I just thought that sounded cool to study culture on behalf of MTV. Um, And I ended up getting a gig there, um, but it was just an internship. Went on to do digital usability at Nickelodeon while I was still in school, and actually got uh, hired and paid a salary for that while I was finishing college. And then when that contract ran up, there was an opening at MTV. So I went back there and spent three years at MTV doing research and strategy, and it was just a big time because everybody was becoming obsessed with the word millennials, and everybody's always put a lot of pressure on MTV to understand youth marketing better than anybody else. So I kind of became by default like the in-house expert on quote-unquote millennials or trends and really what was going on and led the charge in socializing a lot of research to showmakers, marketing strategists, Um, and senior management about what was separating today's young culture from when MTV was huge in the 90s, what was different about that then. Um, And then from then, got recruited over to NBC Universal, and was director of trends research. And at the time, I was like 24. I thought that sounded so hot. You know, I had a cool office, big salary. um, And I hated that job. And I quit seven months later to go run a startup because I just learned that you know, a lot of the ways that people make money is by having equity in a company that sells. And so I wanted to basically take a shot at that. So I ran a company called Y for two years, um, and it was amazing. We tripled their annual revenue, consulted brands across categories who were trying to understand what's going on with 18 to 34 year olds from Jack Daniels to Audi to NFL. Um, and from there, I got a phone call from somebody at Revolt who said that um, they had heard my name and they wanted to talk to me about a potential new role. Um, doing research and strategy for the, for Diddy's new network as it was going to launch. And then just to wrap that up, you know, the, the guy who actually put my name in for the job at Revolt was the dude I used to sit next to when I was at Nickelodeon. So if you do the math, that was like eight years ago. I haven't talked to him in years. And I always just knew that like you keep a healthy Rolodex of people, you know, all your contacts create exponential value over time because they go to work for other places. They go to have, conversations with other people, um, you always want to make sure that you're top of mind in what you do so that when they bump into somebody who says, hey, do you know anybody who does this, your name um, can be recommended. Uh, and so since then, I've been doing my thing at Revolt running consumer research, uh, which because we're new basically means also providing strategic implica- implications across what kind of digital products we make from our app to our website to what kinds of um, shows and overall programming strategy we think about, like what is the opportunity for a TV in this day and age, as well as consulting our advertising partners like McDonald's, um, also on the distribution side. So talking to folks like Comcast and sharing our expertise and kind of working with them to attract a new generation of media consumers.
0: Oh, that is that is that's a lot, especially for Revolt. I didn't know the extent of how many different departments that you have to communicate with. Um but obviously from the storyline you have great information to spread across
1: the world.
2: I hope so on a good day.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: so uh Jake, I have to ask you, you know, uh me being in strategy, uh I came to this uh field in an unconventional way. So no one really starts off going, oh, I want to be a strategist. They usually, you know, everyone wants to be the content creators, everyone wants to be the quarterback, and no one wants to be the, the D lineman. <laughs> uh, so can you, what, what inspired you to do that or, or get into the field?
2: Good question. I mean, I think for me personally, like, I've never been a great blank sheet of paper guy. I've always been stronger at being able to optimize something or being an editor. You know, like, I've sat in brainstorms where they're like, what should we make for this campaign? And, like, I'm just not that guy who has, like, the crazy zeitgeisty client-pleasing idea that comes out of thin air. I'm the guy who can look at, like, a major established media brand or a music artist or a celebrity and say, hey, if they tweak this thing about their marketing, they can optimize their efforts in many different ways. And that comes more naturally to me. So I think strategy naturally is, like, looking at, what's going on in the organization you sit within and then providing deliverables and expertise and, you know, also building relationships that allow you to help optimize things that are put into motion already versus being the one who's actually making them. And then that said, you know, I think throughout one's career, like anybody who makes something does strategy by default, you know, so you you do have to be realistic about where does strategy live in different organizations. You know, I have a unique role at Revolt, Not every organization has in-house strategists who kind of just do research and provide implications. Sometimes you'll have the marketers themselves have a research budget, and they also do research, um, and they also own the overall strategy.
0: Okay, cool, cool.
1: And, uh, you know, to continue on that pathway, so a lot of strategists find their insights in many different ways. Some prefer to use, uh, well, very expensive tools, you know, Crimson Hexagon, Radiant 6. And then some people prefer to do things like just follow people around in, in a grocery store and do ethnography. So I like to just talk to people because especially when you get someone embroiled in like a passionate conversation, they, they, they really give you the the key moment. What, what do you prefer?
2: Um, you know, personally, I prefer the opinion of someone who's a thought leader or just an incredibly interesting individual who has credibility in a space versus relying on data. You know, the reality of research is you need to like uphold your perspective in rigor that is true research like having done surveys with enough consumers to back up your gut or have evolved your thought or your understanding of a demographic or a trend or something like that you know but sometimes to get the inspiration of what it is you're trying to find out so like we always don't know what we don't know and i believe and i'm personally most interested in to find out what we don't know you've got to just do interviews with experts who inspire you and can help you explore different territory or figure out where the holes are and the gaps of knowledge in the industry. So like when I did this project last year when we launched Revolt, you know, a big piece of the project, it was called Road to Truth, and it was about cutting to the truth of all this nonsense research out there about like millennials and Gen Z, et cetera, et cetera. I hopped on a plane and went and interviewed everybody from, Jonah Berger, who's the professor of marketing at Wharton and wrote a book called Why Things Catch On, uh, to Piers Fox, who runs PSFK, to um, a guy named Kevin Kasatsu, who's the co-owner of Mad Decent with Diplo. And basically just was like approaching them saying, you know, you've been targeting this audience or studying this audience and what's working for a variety of different years. Like what do you feel like has changed over the course of the last five years? And then use that perspective, to inform what it is we study in traditional research, like focus groups, and surveys, and ethnographies, and things like that. So, to me, small data is as interesting as big data.
1: Mm. Yeah, and that's 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 huge. That's a huge separation. And so, you, since you know, you have such expertise on the the millennial generation, or actually, a lot of people hate the word millennial. <laughs> I, mean, I
0: don't like that, the word millennial. I because the millennials can be very, very, very different people within this one umbrella. Yeah, you know, someone born between the 80s and the 2000s or even 95. I see the year change from whatever I'm reading. But millennials are more than just that. But go ahead.
1: So, like, what what are some misconceptions that everyone has about millennials that they feel that aren't true? Like, a lot of people say that millennials have short attention spans or that they're they're too embroiled in technology so they don't like real-life
2: connections. Yeah, I, you know, I think the, the biggest thing is the number one misconception about millennials is using the word millennials. You know, to me, <laughs> millennial is like a cultural context, and millennials is like a species. And you can't sum up 100 million people in PowerPoint slides. You know, I feel like when when my, when my team at MTV started using the word millennials and talking about millennial, it was just a strategy to sensitize people who had like 20 years of experience of making hit shows under their belt, to listening to the research department to say, hey, maybe I do understand the timeless themes of what it is to be cool or how to make cool content, but maybe I should listen to the timely expression of those themes. So it was just a way to say like, you know, every every young demographic undergoes like the same timeless transformation developmentally. When you start talking about generations, you're talking about, how those transformations have a unique expression based on culture's context today. And the reason the world has become so obsessed with the word millennials is because, you know, like the introduction of technology into our society is the equivalent of like introducing flying cars. You know what I mean? And every brand that abides by the rules of the old world, whether it comes to marketing communications Um, developing a product, creating services, understanding social media, is deeply impacted by the introduction of the rules of the new world. So if you are a target, if you're Procter & Gamble, if you're a traditional cable operator, you are really concerned about the expectations of somebody who's native to digital and social media entering your core target audience because they're going to feel much differently about your product than somebody who didn't know that world, didn't grow up with those tools in hand. Um, and I feel like since then, you know, millennials have kind of evolved into this, like, lane of content in outlets across the industry, from the New York Times to the Wall Street Journal to Media Post. Um, and there's just so much crap out there, you know. I think at the end of the day, we're just talking about an interesting moment in culture where things have innovated, like, more in the past five to ten years than they did in the past 30. You know, people get jobs, fall in love, um, consume content in ways that there wasn't, like, a lengthy, healthy period of innovation. It just happened overnight. You know, you think about what digital has really done to society, and all these institutions that kind of rested on their laurels are freaking out trying to figure out what does that mean for our category, what does that mean for our business. So for me, the obsession with millennials has been a good thing because I get to place myself – I like to say millennials is a word that opens dialogues across boardrooms about planning the future of a business, not because we really need to understand a new species or there is a new species, but because they are the personification of the wave of change, you know? And so that, that's made my career really interesting. I just, you know, and I, and I also, let's be real with ourselves. The industry of market research has a lot of boring data out there. Um, So this is nothing new that there's a lot of bad, cheesy market research out there. You know, you look at TV research 10 years ago, it's like just, you know what I mean? Mm. I
0: know I mean you you got a valid point, um, so when we say quote unquote millennials like they they're we're just we just happen to be a group, this generation that has all this technology at our fingertips, and we're really being able to control what we want there's more um to me, it seems there's more we we control what t v we watch what content we watch, if we're gonna watch commercials, if we're gonna listen to the radio, we have so much options. So I do see how um uh I do see like the fear for a lot of businesses on how do I keep up, how do I catch up? And one thing I've I've noticed all the time is that businesses are trying to find a way to catch up to millennials on the social media platform and in
2: the digital space.
0: So what are your comments on the future of social media?
2: You know, I'm genuinely interested to see if social media is as much a passion point for today's 13-year-olds when they're 25 as it is for today's 25-year-olds. You know, because, like, social media was this thing that if you're in your mid to late 20s, like, you watched the world change overnight. Like, you had these weird late nights of swimming through Kazaa or looking through Facebook and reconnecting with old friends from camp from when you were a little kid, and you just watched all these barriers come down. Like, you got to rally against a brand that wronged you in some consumer experience. You got to read about some weird ingredients that someone found in some food at a restaurant you knew. And I think what what that means is it it truly is, social media in itself is a passion point for today's 20-somethings and late teens. You know, I wonder if for today's young kids who are growing up and getting an iPad at the age of like 10 and and turning 13 and getting a Facebook account, if it's just going to be like There and it is what it is Or if it's going to be as cool as it was For today's young adults You know and I also I worry a little bit I mean we could spend all day talking about this next part But I do worry a little bit about like The irony of social media is There's almost nothing social about it You know if you think about that It totally is the anti-social introduction To our society that is causing people to like Look down at their phones and not pay attention To one another um, in ways That culture really hasn't faced before So I think when it comes to the future of social media, I don't know if it's going to be, like people have always had these assumptions that today's 25-year-olds, when they're 45, they're going to be as connected, as ingrained in social media as they are right now. And so as a result, brands that target 45-year-olds, let's say Harley Davidson, have to understand how you engage customers through social media. And I don't know if that's true. You know, when I do research, I find that there's like ebbs and flows of, popularity when it comes to social media, that if you look at anybody over the age of 25, the data that I've collected shows um, it's just information and entertainment and water cooler, whereas for the age under 25, especially with teens, it's really a tool for self-expression and identity formation. And that is not something that, you know, when you polled the 26-year-olds i polled in the past year, when you polled that same age range, you know, just eight years, you know, six years ago, like, basically, those folks used to use it as a tool for self-expression, used to use it as a tool for identity formation. And then it just becomes this thing that connects you to kind of what's happening in the world. It's more like the modern-day news than really a bunch of 40-year-olds running around, like, posting selfies. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, that makes sense. Um, we use social media as the news, the new newspaper. Like, Twitter is your new You see, it it breaks on Twitter first and it breaks on Facebook first. I remember when Facebook kind of redesigned themselves to have more of a, like, a a newspaper type of look. So you're right. I mean, I I don't think I was, I don't think I post as much as I do when I was in high school (laughs) compared to now. And maybe it's because I have a life now. I don't know. I don't don't know. But... um, you You definitely do have a point, I do see that, um, and in the research that you shared at Morocco, you really like broke down not only social media the social media landscape but each platform and the tools for each platform and how individuals use each platform differently
2: yeah yeah, no and for some, sure some I have... mean, I think that... yeah, go ahead, no no, please do, oh, I was just gonna say that you know there's just always been this assumption from marketers that. Um, again, and going back to misconceptions about quote unquote millennials or understanding millennial consumption habits, that social media defines millennials, and I think that's just what, what I find in my research is social media defines being young. It has nothing. It's not that you know when you talk about generations, you're you're making you're making it sound as if these people are going to take these traits with them throughout life. And what I feel like my research shows is that like obsession with social media and truly using it and being switched on by it every single day is a young person's game. You know, when you grow up a little bit, um, it starts to, it's definitely something you might still use a lot and as much, but it just becomes more of like the resource for what's going on around the world. than it is like, Oh my God, this is like my identity is totally taking shape on this platform. I need the feedback. I need to like connect with this person. Like it's so drama filled. Um, It just isn't like that for those 25 plus in the data I've collected.
0: That's true, right,
1: so the thing that I, I about social media is that it seems that to try to garner broader audiences, like you said it was you know it's to think of it's just a young young person's thing, but like they're trying to get more people by actually adding more tools, so like things like social media are like not staying within their original lane. like Facebook just added like money, you can send money on Facebook now you know, after Snapchat after that, how do you think that is actually impacting? Social media. Do you feel that everyone's losing their distinction, or that they're blending
2: in together? Or, or it's a really good question. You know, it's hard to say. I mean, the reality is, you know, the business of media is driven by creating platforms and content that retains large audiences. And so you have Facebook. You know, something there's like stats out there that are 90% of the world's population is on Facebook. And that varies by market, obviously. But on average, that tends to be how many people in designated areas have Facebook accounts. And so it's only natural that somebody with that much reach says to themselves, let's get into the financial sector. You know, let's get into media. Let's get into talent development. Let's get into advertising. Let's get into branded content. Um, And I think they're very much in experimentation mode where they're figuring out how can they drive revenue. You know, if you look at Snapchat has only taken, like, three years to start being pressured to bring in actual revenue. Facebook took ten years. You know, they went public before they were actually making any money. Um, and Snapchat is, you know, obviously not even public yet, um, but it's under pressure from investors to make money sooner than some of its older sibling networks did. I think okay. that the reality is, you know, when you when you talk about, like, are people's comfort levels going to be there when it comes to um, having their credit card information and paying through something like Facebook? You know, every day that exists, it gets n- more and more normal and normalized for rising young consumers. So you can see how somebody's okay. 13. By the time they're 25, they're going to be like, oh yeah. You know, like I pay through Facebook or I pay through Apple Pay, whereas we kind of look at that, we're like, oh, that seems so weird. You know.
0: Yeah, I do. I do understand. Thank you so much, so much for the call. Our time is up here, but thank you so much, and I hope to see you guys in the future. Okay.
2: Okay, guys. Thanks. Have a good one. Thanks, Jake.
0: that was our show
2: that was our show
1: yeah that was our show thank you everyone for listening
0: alright then bye (laughs) and tune in for the next episode (laughs) wow